0: Hi and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the courts and the Supreme Court and I'm Dahlia Lithwick and I cover those things for Slate and this is the second in our summer series of episodes that take a break from the kind of grinding news cycle to root around in the bookstores and in the law reviews and we might even check out plays and movies sometimes basically looking for ways to help us think about how to think about the courts and the law from outside uh, of this hermetically sealed season. This week, we're doing something that's even a little bit different from that as a way to make sense of the news in late June that the U.S. Supreme Court had overturned Roe v. Wade and (laughs) Planned Parenthood versus Casey in a case that you now know well called Dobbs versus Jackson. And we have spent a lot of the year, talking about reproductive freedom and reproductive justice as a legal matter, a statutory matter, a constitutional matter. But I think as Americans try to integrate the idea that the right to end a pregnancy is no longer protected in the Constitution, and trying to integrate what that even (laughs) means for pregnant people, for women, for young girls, for physicians, for clinics, uh, nothing that we have been able to say on this show seemed... Adequate to contain the enormity of what has been lost, because maybe law and media are just not sufficient to explain the enormity, but I I kind of think art is. And so this week we are turning to someone I just admire and respect so much. Uh, Heidi Schreck is the playwright and actor whose show, What the Constitution Means to Me?, is a Tony Award-nominated Pulitzer Prize finalist. The play opened off-Broadway in 2018. It moved to Broadway in 2019 and became one of those shows that everybody was talking about nonstop. Since its Broadway run, What the Constitution Means to Me has gone on a national tour and a streaming version of the show with Heidi in it, released on Amazon Prime. And also, FYI, Heidi has given birth to twins, which no doubt somewhat affects the way she thinks about reproduction and your body. So while I saw what the Constitution means to me twice on Broadway, once to participate on a panel with Heidi and Professor Lawrence Tribe, and then a second time uh, memorably with one of my two teenage sons who found it life-changing, the play's been kind of rattling around in my head in the three years since I saw it as a commentary on abortion, on violence, on Constitution worship, and also maybe on magic and hope. When I was 15 years old,
1: I would travel the country giving speeches about the United States Constitution for prize money. A few years ago, I was thinking about the Constitution for various reasons. (laughs) And I uh, I thought it would be interesting to go back and see what my 15-year-old self loved so much about this document, because I loved it. I was a zealot. 202 years ago. A group of magicians got together on a sweltering summer day in Philadelphia, and they wanted to kill each other, but instead (laughs) they sat down together and they performed a collective act of ethical visualization, or as I like to call it, a spell. That is why I love Amendment 9 so much, because it acknowledges that who we are now might not be who we will become. It uh, it leaves a little room for the
0: future self. So I want to welcome Heidi to Amicus as somebody who, I don't know, Heidi, do you think of yourself these days as one of those people post-dubs who really could just only wear T-shirts that say, I tried to warn you?
1: I don't want to wear that T-shirt. You know, I started making that show uh, over a decade ago and was you know, sort of looking toward this moment when I started writing it. But, well, when the leak happened, obviously, I was shocked. Even though I knew something like that was coming, I didn't expect it to be so blatant, I guess, and without even uh, the pretense of objectivity. (laughs) And yet still, when the official decision came, I have to say I felt stunned. I felt like I didn't see it coming, even though I knew intellectually it was coming, I viscerally, in my body, in my mind, in my sort of emotional landscape, I, I felt completely unprepared.
0: And I think I want to tell listeners, first of all, Heidi is very, very clear in every conversation we've ever had. I am not a constitutional scholar, and I know that I want to say that. And yet I would say that this play was such a kind of, a for me, revelation about how to think about the Constitution as somebody who's covered the court for, for two decades, including you know just the way you thought about penumbras and emanations and the way you thought about power and the way you thought about the ways in which we have to worship at the altar of this thing that fundamentally renders us invisible. And so I thought maybe, Heidi, and, and we're going to do this just as a dialogue. And Heidi, I want you to just ask me whatever you want to ask me, but maybe just start by talking about the genesis of the show, what led you to it, what you were trying to do, because it did take you years and there's so much of you in it. And I wonder if you can just tell us what you were trying to do and what, what it ended up doing.
1: I didn't know what I was doing when I started. So I was definitely in the penumbra. I just knew I wanted to write a play about this profound experience I had as a teenage girl giving these speeches about the Constitution for scholarship money. I thought it seemed like a fertile premise for a piece of art, but I didn't have any preconceived notions about what that might look like. And in fact, I would say that in the beginning, I definitely leaned toward maybe a light-hearted comedy, which seems absurd to me now, but like, you know, about girl debaters or something. As soon as I began working on it uh, seriously, it sort of led me down this road that I did not expect to take. You know, I like to start all of my plays uh, or screenplays with a question. So my question was, what if I took seriously the prompt I was given as a teenager, which is to connect my personal life and history to the Constitution, which, you know, is a pretty common question given to you in high school when you write your paper about, you know, what the Constitution means to you, which is why the title was sort of tongue-in-cheek. And as soon as I began to take that question seriously as a woman, I was at that time in my 30s, I found myself confronting a lot of things about my life, about my family history, that I hadn't really confronted before, including, um, a long history of domestic abuse on my maternal side, uh, including the abortion I had when I was just out of college that I had never told my mom about, even though my mom's a feminist and was adamantly, loudly pro-choice, while investigating these things and trying to understand how I would have talked about them in relationship to the Constitution, I just discovered a lot of things about the Constitution that I didn't really understand at 15. And I will say, you know, I, I'm a white girl who grew up in a tiny conservative town. So, like, I think there are a lot of people who knew things about the Constitution that I did not because I was very protected in many ways. So as soon as I started researching this, I just started to realize how deeply unprotected the women on my maternal line had been, how domestic violence had been essentially enshrined in law for centuries and in our laws and was not addressed by any constitutional cases. I started realizing how important, my right to choose to have an abortion, how vital that had been to my life and the fact that it allowed me to shape a kind of life for myself that my mom was not able to shape, that my grandmother certainly was not able to, that my aunt, who was a victim of rape, of sexual abuse from her stepfather, was definitely not able to do with her own life. And I suddenly just had this wholly different play than I had started out to write.
0: And. I think I also want to just say, as somebody who would sit in the audience, just surrounded by young women who were, I think, right on that seam, Heidi, that you were exploring, which is, I love the Constitution. It makes me free. I love the Supreme Court. That's like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I have seven mugs of, and like some other guys— And that kind of creeping sense over the course of the play that the Constitution is so, in some sense, wholly inadequate to the task of, you know, seeing their lives. But I think that part of what it seems to me was sort of both painful and hopeful was watching people, particularly young women, but certainly, again, my, my teenage son, walk out of the audience and just say, like, holy hell, this is a train wreck. Like, this this thing that we don't think about much has absolutely everything to say about our lives. And I wonder if— That sense of ambivalence that shoots through the play, the sort of worship of the Constitution and the deep anxiety about it, that ambivalence that everyone walked out of the play with, what it feels to carry all that now when you have, you know, an outcome that is so, as you said, wildly unexpected that I think in those audiences of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, nobody really saw this coming.
1: Yes, well, I mean, it's a strange paradox because I think, in a way, lots of people saw it coming, including people in those audiences. You know, I was first performing the play in a long run off-Broadway when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening. And I think even then, the intense rage and grief around all of that was in part because we could all see like a slow-motion car crash, what was coming. And I think the play explores this a little bit, too. I think there's a kind of cognitive dissonance growing up in this culture, I'm going to say as like a a young white woman, in particular a, a cis woman, where you can kind of convince yourself that everything is okay, because largely, you know, your life might be okay. I do think a lot of us have been living in denial. Lots of people saw what was coming, and yet it's really hard to live with that reality on a day-by-day basis, particularly if you don't know what power you have to if you have power to change it to affect anything in a country where voting rights have been decimated in a country where clearly the will of the people is not the thing being enacted how do you do anything about it and sometimes i think some of us decide instead to live in the delusion that like we are free and equal because to recognize how vastly unequal life is for the majority of people in this country, it would make it hard to get through your day. Obviously, then, there are so many people in this country who don't have the luxury of living in that kind of denial, who never had access, (laughs) for example, to reproductive health care. The situation with abortion has been like voting. You know, like I had an abortion. I had access to abortion as a young woman, but by the time I had my abortion, which was in the early 90s, um... Uh, Casey, um, with the Hyde Amendment, with various uh, punitive state laws had basically made abortion inaccessible to all sorts of people in this country, particularly Black women, women of color, Indigenous women, um, trans folks. And I do think it's important. I've just been thinking a lot lately, inspired by the great ACLU lawyer and activist Chase Strangio To remember these fights are connected. The fight for bodily autonomy. And as Chase Strangio says, self determination is all of our fights. It's what trans people are fighting for. It's what we should be fighting for on their behalf. It's what people who can get pregnant, who, you know, are a lot of trans people can get pregnant, are also fighting for. It's one big fight to have control over our own bodies and the way we shape our lives. And some of us in this fight have been able to live in more denial than than others.
0: One of the things I was thinking rereading the play this morning, Heidi, I was really struck by this imaginative project that you were doing. And, you know, part of it was, I mean, just the the sort of setup of the play itself was to just make women and their lived experience and world visible. And, like, theoretically that's happening to 15-year-old you who's talking to a bunch of judges, you know, who are legionnaires and they're white men and they're smoking cigars. And 15-year-old you is telling them, you know, to imagine a different world, and then there's also the same imaginative project where you're actually saying to your audience, like, I need you to imagine this other reality. And I I was really struck by the ways in which this was Justice Ginsburg's project too, right? That when she used to have to stand up in front of nine white men or nine, you know, three judge panels on the 10th circuit, uh, all of whom were men, that was always the play, right? Was to say, I'm not going to get you to understand what a woman's life is like, but I want you to try to imagine yourself into their lives. And it's so interesting to me, this parallel between Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the late 60s and early 70s, imploring white men to just make this imaginative leap, and you doing it in 2019, because we're still not there yet. No, we're
1: not. I have to say, too, I mean, um, and you will know more than I do, but... At first, Justice Ginsburg didn't even attempt to get them to imagine into women's lives, right? That was the whole thing is she started arguing her cases for equality of the sexes by using men as her plaintiffs, right? Like, imagine your own life. So I I feel like she didn't even trust in the beginning that she could get these people to imagine into other people's lives. She had to, like, do all these contortions, brilliant contortions, when she was starting out. And I, I do feel like the play is... The sort of living experience of the play is that. It's what I did as a teenager. It's like all the judges were men and I wanted to win. So I contorted the way I presented myself to be appealing, you know, to be palatable, I guess, to them. And that strategy, you know, now that I'm a grown-up, I'm like, did that, does that work? I don't, it doesn't seem to be working right now. And what is the cost of that strategy, too, Personally, culturally, politically, I think about teaching my daughters how to be in the world. And I, I don't want them to feel like they need to play act the way I felt I needed to
0: play act as a teenage girl. We're going to take a brief break for some words from our sponsors. Now let's return to our conversation with actor and playwright Heidi Schreck. I have to ask you about witches, Heidi, because I think when I saw the play, I didn't necessarily draw such a straight line (laughs) between your (laughs) bubbling cauldron and your references to (laughs) witches and spells and Sam Alito citing actual witch burner, Matthew Hale, in the Dobbs opinion. (laughs) And I was just like, I just... Ask Heidi about witches. Heidi, witches go.
1: <laughs> like many uh, young girls, I was really interested in witches. I like I, I read a lot of stuff about them. I was really fascinated. Uh, I will say, like some of the witchy stuff in the play just came about from me sort of remembering what my interests were as a young girl and also as a teenager, but also. I did remember accurately that I was really obsessed with the Ninth Amendment when I was in high school because it it really stood out, you know, among the other amendments, among everything else in the document, actually. I was like, what is this mysterious sentence that tells you that just because a right is not listed in the Constitution, it doesn't mean you don't have that right? Like, what is this strange, you know, it's very Vague. It felt very mysterious, and then when I started reading about it, and I started learning about William O. Douglas and the penumbras, and I started reading about Griswold, and I was like, "This is just fascinating." This language about shadows and penumbras and casting light into various parts of the document, and like it felt very witchy and magicy. As a grown woman, I was like, well, "Isn't this?" fascinating that this is what they come up with to talk about bodies that can get pregnant, because (laughs) apparently they don't have a lot of other concrete knowledge or ways of talking about it. And so I I just found it kind of hilarious and also meaningful that all of this vague language, like not, not only did our right to control our reproductive life, and thereby control our own lives and control the shape of our Futures and have a say over what happens to our bodies. Like, not only did that have to be found in an unenumerated rights in the Constitution, but like, even when these men were talking about this, they were using kind of woo woo language, which I found really
0: interesting. You use so much and so deftly uh, snippets from oral argument in the play. Here are nine men deciding the
1: fate of birth control, four of whom are cheating on their wives. But I've interrupted you. Uh, you told us that in Connecticut the sale of uh, these devices is
0: uh, not molested uh, because they're sold for the prevention of disease. Is this uh, true about all of these devices that are covered, uh, that each of them has the uh, potential dual function of acting in a contraceptive capacity and as a prevention of disease? Probably only true with respect to some, but some get by under the term uh, feminine hygiene. And uh, uh, others uh, 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 I, I, I just don't know about. Uh, but uh, uh, they are, they are uh, all sold in the Connecticut uh, drugstores on one theory or another.
1: Is there anything in the record to <clears throat> to indicate to, uh, the uh, kind of the frustration, the Connecticut vis-a-vis the states that don't have such uh, laws?
0: It's like four hours of that. <laughs> These guys like wouldn't say the word IUD at gunpoint, no. right? Like, there's a moment in Griswold where it's like, oh, nobody say the name of the devices. That would be alarming. And you're just like, why are you regulating devices you can't name? And you, yeah, just like they can't name abortion right now. Poor,
1: poor Joe Biden can't say the word abortion. It.
0: It's, it's astounding, and it's so revanchist and backward, and then you have a, a, an almost more arresting colloquy between Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia having one of their famous, "ho ho you know, I, I will do funny wordplay around the word shall. Wait,
1: wait, I, I thought we were just talking here about state law as to whether shall means shall. Do you think that it's a matter of state law, whether whether if it does mean shall, it creates a property interest for purposes of the federal uh,
0: constitution? No, Justice Glee, I don't. Suppose Something- shall does mean shall. Fine. But you might have a statute that says the fire department shall respond to fires. The police department shall respond to crimes. The
1: army shall respond to uh, 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 attacks Even the word shall doesn't necessarily mean.
0: And I think you're using both of those in the same way to kind of illuminate how both academic and out of touch these oral arguments were. But I also think, again, how there's almost a reveling in the silliness around it that is really an affront. Yeah, as
1: part of my research, I listened to lots of cases. So I went to the great site, org, And I, the first time I listened to Griswold, truly, my mouth just was agape. Because I'm a writer and an entertainer in some way, Like I couldn't believe, honestly, how hilarious it was. I mean, hilarious and tragic, but I... I I I was like, this is not, this can't be real. (laughs) They're hemming and hawing and clearing their throats and they can't say IUD. They're so, that you can just almost see them sweating. (laughs) Uh, I brought it in and played it for my director and my whole room full of collaborators and their mouths dropped open. Um, It really brought home how absurd it was for these men to be legislating what happens to women's bodies, to people's bodies who can get pregnant. It was so clear when you listened to it how absurd the whole situation is. I think now that this, Ruling that takes us back to 1868. I've read that dissent a number of times because I find it so powerful and moving. And them saying, you know, it wasn't people who decided who got rights under the 14th Amendment, it was men. <laughs> Women were not part of that decision. So, like, how, how are we going back to a time? Why are we going back to the precedent set during a time when? So many people had no say. And then, of course, I went on to listen to Gonzalez versus Castle Rock because of my grandmother, because my grandmother lived in a situation very similar to the situation of domestic violence that the plaintiff, Jessica Gonzalez, was in, in this very important case about police protection and domestic violence. And I could see my grandma's story in Jessica's story and know that, like, it could have gone. You know, my grandma and my mom and her siblings survived, and they might not have. They might have had the same fate as Jessica's daughters, who were killed by her husband. And so I wanted to hear that case just to understand how that decision was made, like how the court decided that the police had no obligation to enforce the restraining order that Jessica had taken out against her husband or had no obligation to actually protect her. And I was, again, I guess because I'm a writer and an artist, I was most struck listening to that case by the clear sense of dissociation from feeling or emotion that a lot of the judges in particular in that exchange, Scalia and Justice Breyer had while talking about the case— as an actor, I could hear <laughs> that they were not connected to feeling while discussing this really tragic case. But if you listen to the whole case, you you hear that Justice Ginsburg is deeply emotional throughout, and she was one of the two dissenters. And I, I think I was just really... Again, I'm not saying anything that we all don't know, but it just listening to their voices brought home how inadequate law is without a connection to feeling.
0: (laughs) Yes, and yet it loops me right back to empathy because I always think that at their best, they're teachable, right? And that... There's an amazing moment when Chief Justice Rehnquist, who suddenly realizes what it's like when his daughter is juggling, you know, kid care and work. And he suddenly writes this incredible end of his life opinion around the Family Medical Leave Act that is written with such solicitude for working mothers that um, Justice Ginsburg used to tell the story, you know, that her husband— Marty was like, "Did you write this? You know, because it just felt <laughs> as though there was no way he could have gotten it, but he did get it. And yes. I think you know, I always think about Sonia Sotomayor like really memorably writing in a case uh, about being a teenage boy and being searched, you know, without your your parents being called. And I was like, she was never a teenage boy, and yet with such empathy about what that would be like. and I think that, you know, and I always remember, um, Justice Ginsburg in the strip search case in Reading, uh, making her colleagues understand that when they were laughing and chuckling about a girl who was strip searched for ibuprofen in her bra at school, and they all thought it was hilarious, very much like that clip you used of Scalia and Breyer, ha, 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 verbal swordplay, and they changed their votes. And there's this line in your play where you right up at the top where you talk about sort of art and empathy and the ability to kind of flip someone, Heidi, where you sort of say, you know, I imagine being confronted by a murder and I just talk him out of it. And, you know, I say, think about this. I'm a human being. And then he realizes I'm a human being. And then we climb up a rainbow. And I think one of the things that you're grappling with in the play, but I also think the play itself is grappling with in the culture, is we can flip people, Heidi. Like we can make them have empathy. We can make them walk in someone else's shoes and understand. And one of the reasons I think that the Dobbs, you know, you mentioned the oral argument and the opinion is such a slap in the face is there's no interest in that project. And in fact, women are not only not visible, they're immaterial.
1: Yes. Yes. They're not taken into account at all. The um, impact this decision has, Is already having on them and will have in the future is not even considered, which I guess this is my question for you, is I always thought that was uh, ostensibly an important consideration in Supreme Court decisions, is that you look at how the law has been applied and what people have come to rely on and the harmful effects that may happen if you were to, say, overturn something. I thought that was a part of judicial reasoning, but it doesn't seem to have been in this case. Is that true, or am I misunderstanding?
0: No, you're completely understanding. It's it's one of the tests in a case where you're overturning precedent— Uh, you have to take into account reliance interests and whether people have come to construct their lives in such a way that they rely on that. You know, talking about Chief Justice Rehnquist again, uh, you know, he switched his vote on the Miranda warning in no small measure because he said an entire generation of Americans have, you know, come to watch television and know that there's a, a Miranda warning and that matters. And you're exactly right. Justice Alito is like, you know, the equivalent of a shruggy emoji, just like, I can't begin to guess uh, who relied on what and doesn't even touch it. And in addition to that, and this is something that I just think is, again, really a a theme in what the Constitution means to me is that in all of the backward looking, in the relentless, like, well, if this isn't, you know, in the time of the framing or the time of the Reconstruction Amendments, then it doesn't matter, is this quality of sort of too earliness, too lateness all the time, where women are always too, you know, early to vindicate their rights. I mean, whenever people say, why wasn't Roe decided, you know, under the equal protection provision, right? It would have been so much more solid. That's what Justice Ginsburg wanted. The law wasn't there yet in 1973 to do that. Right. And the justices all thought that the ERA was going to pass. They all believed it and they didn't want to get out in front of their skis. And I think that there's this crazy way where all of the stuff that shows up in the briefing in Dobbs and a little bit in Casey, which is actually it's really terrible for women's economic equality, to not have control over their reproductive lives, that stuff actually now has force. We have good data. The briefing on this is phenomenal. You know when we didn't have it? In 1973. <laughs> and it's so maddening that you're never going to be on time to meet the constitutional moment because, as you said, women didn't matter at any of these inflection points, and now they still don't matter because they didn't matter in 1973. Right.
1: Right. So how do you, how do we get out from under that? There's the Equal Rights Amendment, for example, is always too early or too late, apparently. You know, it was just finally ratified <laughs> a couple years ago. We have the number of states we need to get it ratified. The House ratified it. If we had a Senate that could say yes, we could have an Equal Rights Amendment in our Constitution that would, in fact, offer protection we simply don't have now. And it's remarkable to me that we haven't been able to make that happen. I've worked a lot with the ERA coalition. And one of the things I've seen in the polling is, first of all, like access to abortion or say, gun laws, the majority of Americans support having an equal rights amendment in the Constitution. And when you go deeper into the polling, a large number of people actually think it's already there. So why is this thing that the majority of Americans agree Should be in this document something that would protect over half the population, why is it we can't pass an amendment that everyone agrees is a good one?
0: We will be right back after this short
1: break. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
0: Now, let us return to our conversation with actor and playwright Heidi Schreck.
1: Here's another question I have for you, uh, which is in addition to this idea that people have come to rely on certain principles or laws or protections, you know, and that the court is supposed to take that into account, aren't they supposed to also look at the real-world harm that might come from overturning a decision? So, for example, in the case of someone having an ectopic pregnancy and a doctor not knowing whether or not it's legal for them to treat this person, right, putting this person's life at risk because these laws are a mess and it's chaos and doctors and healthcare providers don't know what's legal and what's not. Isn't that uh, a real world harm that should have been taken into account at least considered in the decision. That's another part I find very confusing as a layperson to understand.
0: I mean, I think that the answer to the layperson is, of course, the court, you know, is supposed to look at that. This is what when Chief Justice Roberts talks about overturning precedent, and he always says it shouldn't be a jolt. That's the word he uses. Right. And, uh, you know, jolt is not doctrinal. It's a lay word to, I think, describe exactly what you are saying which is it cannot be the case that physicians in Louisiana can't get prescriptions filled for something that helps you insert an IUD, or that you can't get plan B, or that you have to wait until a woman is crashing and septic until you can, right, terminate a pregnancy, and that lawyers are trying to figure this out, and that that's not Consequential, And I think that the kind of flip answer that Alito gives, in addition to his, I don't know, who knows, you know, is that it doesn't matter because the only test left is history. The only test is history. And we see that both in Dobbs and in the gun case, right, in in yes. Bruin, where Breyer, you know, opens his dissent with these just like horrifying, just Devastating, devastating statistics about gun violence, and Alito like smacks him on the nose like uh, with a rolled up newspaper, and it's like, who cares? That doesn't matter. So I think it's one of the kind of ways in which this has become. You know, I keep comparing it to to Middlemarch, like the most airless <laughs> academic discussion. Yes you know, in the parlor over Sherry. And there's almost like a point of pride in not taking into account that people will die, that a 10-year-old had to travel to Indiana because she was raped and couldn't get uh, uh, the procedure she needed in Ohio. And I don't know how, it's one of the reasons I was so interested in talking to you, is that if law is that arid and that constrained, that it cannot contain any of this reality, then where do we put it? <laughs> like, where the hell do we put it? And, you know, I think you put it in art and culture. And I always think about Anita Hill, who always says and has said on this show, like, culture has to change because law is not driving it. And maybe that's the answer, is that all the people who are now realizing that law is too arid to contain the reality you just described, are realizing that there's got to be some other pressure point. So my question, though,
1: is how do we do that uh, when—so, for example, we all know that the majority of Americans support the right to abortion, some of them with more restrictions, some of them with less, but it's generally understood that this is popular with most Americans, the right to decide what to do if you get pregnant, and the right to, for example, have an abortion if your life is in danger or in cases of rape or incest. We know that the majority of people support this. So my question is, given that we live in a country where voting rights have been gutted and now gerrymandering is... uh, soon to be, seems like, explicitly endorsed, like, given that we live in a structure where, for example, we have this Senate, so that, like, a minority of people are making the decisions for a majority of people, like, how how do we make change? Even if the culture changes, like, aren't we sort of stuck now because we're living in this system that's not going to allow the culture to have an effect? on our laws or is not going to allow people to decide what our laws are? I'm just very confused about that. Listen, this is
0: why I think we need, you know, your next play to be what the Voting Rights Act means to me. Like, I think (laughs) that you were, although it was an artistic endeavor, I think you were describing a systems problem, right? Yes. You were describing a systems problem, which is if you have a document that – guarantees rights that are only rights that were protected at, you know, two moments in history, and in both those moments, women were owned by their spouse and uh, could not work, (laughs) you know, could not be a lawyer and could not vote, then that asymmetry is baked in. And that's what your play is about. And that we live in the ruins of that every day. You know, we live trying to claw that back. Uh, And the ERA didn't work out and we never quite got equal protection to where we wanted it to be. And ostensibly this substantive due process right to bodily autonomy and family autonomy was in totally fabricated out of cotton candy like that's. That's what we have to do to understand. And I think by the same token, like we just have to understand it goes back to all the magical thinking that 15-year-old Heidi was telling those legionnaires about, you know, that it's not perfect, that it's working exactly as it was was intended to do, which is privilege, you know, white, male, landowning, rural, (laughs) many slave owners, you know, who thought women and their slaves were chattel because they were. That's it's working fine. It did exactly that. And in many ways, it still does. And I think there's a moment in the play even where you are sort of thinking about how, you know, it didn't have to be this way. Like, that's why you're in love with the Ninth Amendment, that it doesn't have to be frozen in amber at those moments. But as long as it is and as long as you are importuning powerful males to give power up. And they are hanging on to it, right? Because if people could vote, as you say, we would have gun protection laws. If people could vote, we would have, uh, you know, much, much, much more liberal uh, reproductive rights. And so I think that it is, this is now like just a tug of war between an institution that was devised to do precisely what it is doing, which is minority rule, And Americans who are, I think, only cottoning on to the fact that if you have the Electoral College and the filibuster and a malapportioned Senate and, you know, all the stuff you just listed, that's going to persist. And these are systems problems. And I think it's really hard to write a play about a systems problem because systems are boring and we like to believe that they work. And I think if anyone can do it, Heidi, it's you.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I'll take up the challenge as soon as my twins hit maybe three. <laughs> this also just, this is one of the questions I wanted to bring to you. As you know, at the end of the play, I debate whether or not to abolish the Constitution. And when I first started performing the play, well, the first time in 2015, uh, it was like a, a stacked debate. Like, I really truly believe, like, yes, this, this document, like, this country is imperfect, and it was created by slaveholders, and it was born out of a a horrific sin and yet as written it's something that has been used for good has been used to protect human rights to make people more equal I truly believed that and so the argument was like a little bit specious but as I kept performing the play uh, and the, the country kept changing I and maybe just the fact that I was arguing it every night you know either one side or the other I just started to feel like, I don't know, is this document, in fact, so in our way that no change is possible as long as it's considered this sacred text or as long as it's our constitution? I, I really, truly now struggle with whether anything can be done as long as it's in place. And, you know, I read that New York article... By Jill Lapore, tracing how the rights of women had actually been rolled back by constitutions generally that we think of them as actually <laughs> expanding our rights. But if you actually look at historically what happened, they restricted rights more than they expanded them. And I, I don't like to despair. I don't believe we have the luxury of despair. But I don't understand how we move forward right now. And I'm for the. F- first time maybe in my life really, really struggling to find where I can hold on to some hope for the future. And maybe that is part of being a new parent. I just I have these two girls and I think about sending them to school in a country with no gun laws. And I think about them growing up in a country where they don't have a reproductive freedom or freedom to shape their own lives. And I think about them, you know, growing up on this planet that we're apparently decided we're not going to protect. And I just, it's really hard that combined with my postpartum hormones, it's really hard not to sink into despair.
0: It's the question. And it's, I think there's some material in the play where you talk about how modern constitutions are kind of better, right? And Justice Ginsburg would always say, you know, did you know that the South African constitution protects the right to dignity, you know, like that, that, there is yeah huge huge cost to being lashed to ideas that are you know centuries old and particularly interpreted in a manner that allows for none of your magic of your ninth amendment and none of your magic of your 14th amendment right the the part of the play where you're kind of talking about the, the ninth amendment as being, you know, a portal to the future. You know, it's the the whole point was to have um, this tunnel to get us to a better place. And I think what you were debating at the end of, of every show is this, existential question of, like, are we freer or are we less free because of this? And I think what makes us more free is the stuff that was magic to 15-year-old Heidi, which is the Ninth Amendment and the 14th Amendment and the play in the joints and the aspiration of doing better and the aspiration of more freedom for more people. And I think we're just in this headlock now with a court that really, really wants to go back to you know, colonial ideas about women as property. And I think that that's, in some sense, the failing isn't the Constitution. The failing is a human failure. And as I kind of keep saying, the failure is a failure of imagination in a deep way. But I guess the question I always had when I watched, I guess I watched two of these debates about abolishing and not, is like, what's plan B? Like, what's, what's our plan for not having a Constitution? And I think part of me always channels Justice Ginsburg, and I, you know, certainly, like, my book that is about to come out is about this. I don't think women do better in situations with less law. I think they do worse, and so it's horrible, and I think maybe that's what you're caught between, is that this sucks, and a world of, you know, Mad Max, vigilante SB8 justice would suck even more, and so then I think that's part of why, for me, the enchantment of the play is like you playing in the penumbras, right? There's light, there's shadow, there's hope, there's dark, there's good people. But um, it's really, really, really hard when the shadows just feel like ultimate blackness. Did you see the documentary, My Name is Polly Murray? Yes. In fact, we talked to the documentarians last summer because we were obsessed with all the women forgotten (laughs) by constitutional history. Absolutely. I
1: feel like watching that documentary, like learning about Polly actually did give me hope. And and actually, now that I'm thinking about Polly, I understand where I can find my hope because I feel like that huge... Act of creativity on Polly's part, right, to like discover in the 14th Amendment to decide that there was this equal protection clause could be used to include women was such a creative, magical act, in fact. (laughs) And I feel like the document does allow for that, right? It's, it's Polly's work that allowed Justice Ginsburg then to go on and argue her cases, right? She cited Polly. And so I feel like thinking about that and people like Polly, you know, this amazing queer Black scholar who was able to go in and say, actually, I do see myself in here and I'm going to show you where I am. And I'm going to show you where you are. I guess like I, I do have some hope when I think of people like that, that the, that the document could make something better possible
0: there's such a nice line in your play about how the youngs give you hope too yes
1: i just i feel so excited by young people lately i really do i feel like you all are so much braver than i remember being at your age you have more compassion you certainly have a more sophisticated understanding of gender (laughs) sometimes i feel like you're like you're shining a light backwards into the darkness so i can follow you into the future i am really moved by all the folks young people right now who are shining a light back into the darkness i look at this incredible young person olivia juliana the abortion access activist who who just has managed to raise I think close to $400,000 for abortion funds by taking on Matt Gates. He came out and, you know, body shamed women or people who get abortions and bullied her, bullied this 19-year-old girl who then, woman, excuse me, <laughs> bullied this 19-year-old woman who then just stepped up and was not going to be bullied and managed to turn that into an opportunity to raise a lot of money to help get a lot of people needed health care and uh, I find that really galvanizing and moving and like watching a teenager do what I couldn't do as a teenager. I, I as a teenager, was so desperate, I think, for the approval of men, hence the smile and the play. It would have paralyzed me to be called out for not being attractive enough for someone, even if they were a dipshit. And so I feel like watching these young people just watching how fierce they are is incredibly inspiring to me
0: One of the things that we've thought about so much in the last few weeks, even just on this show, but also at Slate and in the Slow Burn podcast, is the work of Peggy Cooper Davis. Is the work of Dorothy Roberts, African American women who, in the face of being smugly told by John Cornyn that there's no such thing as penumbras and emanations, there's no such thing as unenumerated rights, that it's all just a punchline, that this is not a serious project, that the Constitution exists to safeguard property rights, contract rights, guns, and, you know, the rights of uh, white men, that all of these people, including, you know, as you say, Pauli Murray, leap in and find themselves there. And, you know, here's Peggy Cooper Davis writing neglected stories about how the 13th and 14th Amendments were drafted deliberately to create a substantive due process right to decide how your family looks because nobody gets to rape you and you're free. And I guess that is like such an act of imagination and sure it can get batted away by John Cornyn, who's telling Katanji Brown Jackson, like there is no place for you. There is no place for that conception of freedom. But the absolute like fierce, imaginative courage, Heidi, of saying, oh, yeah, there's a place for me in here. And here's here's all the data I have to show it. it it's not just like courageous. It's like kind of all we have. Yeah. Yep. I think that's right.
1: And I I'm glad we're having this conversation <laughs> because also I've been very alone. I will say it's like a very interesting time to have just given birth and be going through postpartum crap because like my hormones are raging. Being pregnant and giving birth was truly the most challenging thing I've ever done. And so I really have a new appreciation for how important it is (laughs) that we be allowed to make this decision for ourselves. Um, So I've also been very isolated. I need to be reminded of the tremendous work that people have been doing for hundreds of years. And I also, I have been raising money for abortion funds and also just being reminded of the work that these abortion funds have been doing really since Casey happened also gives me courage and reminds me that, yes, Alito can insist that we don't move beyond 1868, but there are powerful, creative, imaginative people who are insisting that we can and have moved beyond that and are doing the work to make sure that we don't go back. I just have to keep Reminding myself of that and doing what I can to support those people and amplify those people.
0: I think that what you've just described, which is its own act of, like, fierce courage, because postpartum is hell, and, you know, we all forget to talk about our abortions and our miscarriages and our DNCs, and, like, we need to get better at that, but I also think that— It's really, really useful because I think for a lot of people who are listening to this show who aren't sitting in postpartum hell, that feeling of being alone in this sadness and this grievous loss of Dubs is really widespread like more so than we think there is such an isolation in being invisible to the highest court of the land and seemingly invisible to the bill of rights it's painful so i'm i'm so grateful that you just sit here and spitball with me because i think that feeling of being smaller than we are and alone and invisible is how they win so yes i think so too Heidi Schreck is the playwright and actor. Her show, What the Constitution Means to Me, is a Tony Award nominated and Pulitzer Prize finalist and absolutely, for me at least, uh, frame-shifting, super-consequential piece of theater. Uh, The play originally opened off-Broadway, moved to Broadway in 2019, and since that Broadway run, What the Constitution Means to Me has gone on a national tour, and a streaming version of the Broadway performance by Heidi was released on Amazon Prime. I cannot thank you enough I think that the trick to having two kids, um, I was once told, Heidi, is do a really good job on one of them because they essentially raise each other. So I just say, have them raise each other. They will be great. And thank you. I cannot thank you enough both for this play that meant the world to me, but also just for being here with us and vulnerable in a really, really sad and hard time. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been really helpful for me to have this conversation. Now I'm gonna go back to my babies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so very much for listening in. And thank you always for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at dot com or you can always find us at Facebook.com/slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio and Ben Richmond is senior director of operations for podcasts at Slate. We will be back with another episode in two short weeks. And until then, do take good care. This is the story of the one.